This reading is from Luther's work, Slinker Edition, Volume 14, the 19th Sunday after Trinity, and we're on page 218. The continuation of this 19th Sunday after Trinity from the last tape. And we're on page 218, paragraph 16, speaking of the righteousness which avails before God. Therefore we are to regard the kingdom of Christ as a large, beautiful arch, or vault, which is everywhere over us, and covers and protects us against the wrath of God. Yea, as a great extended firmament, which pure grace and forgiveness illuminate, and so fill the world and all things, that all sin will hardly appear as a spark in comparison with the great extended sea of light. And although sin may oppress it, it cannot injure, but must disappear and vanish before grace. They who understand this may well be called masters, but we will all have to humble ourselves and not be ashamed to keep on learning this lesson as long as we live. For wherever our nature succeeds in finding sin, it tries to make an unbearable burden of it. Satan fans a spark and blows up a great fire which fills heaven and earth. Here the leaf must be turned and we must firmly conclude if the sin were ever so great or burdensome, this article of faith is nevertheless much higher, wider, and greater, which has been recommended and established not by man's wisdom, but by him who has comprehended heaven and earth and holds them in the hollow of his hand. My sin and piety must remain here on earth as far as they are concerning the, my life and conduct outwardly, but in heaven above I have another treasure greater than either of these where Christ is seated and holds me in his arms, covers me with his wings, overshadows me with his grace. You may say, how is this, since I daily feel sin and my conscience condemns me and threatens me with God's wrath? I answer, for this reason I say one must understand that the righteousness of a Christian is nothing that can be named or imagined, but the forgiveness of sin, that is, it's a kingdom of power which deals only with sin, and with such abundant grace as takes away all wrath. It is called the forgiveness of sin for the reason that we are truly sinners before God. Yes, everything in us is sin, even though we may have all human righteousness. For where God speaks of sin, there must be real and great sin. So also forgiveness is no jest, but real earnestness. When you therefore consider this article, you have both. Sin takes away all your holiness, no matter how pious you are on earth. Again, forgiveness takes away all sin and wrath. Therefore, your sin cannot cast you into hell, nor can your piety elevate you into heaven. Therefore, when the devil disturbs your conscience and tries to bring despair to your heart by saying, Have you not learned that one must be pious? Then answer courageously and say, Yes, you're right. 
I'm a sinner that I have known before, for this article called The Forgiveness of Sins has taught me this long ago. I am to be pious and do what I can before the world, but before God I am willing to be a sinner and to be called nothing else. That this article may remain true, else there would not be forgiveness or grace, but it must needs be called a crown of righteousness and of merits. Therefore, although I feel nothing but many and great sins, yet they are no longer sins, for I have for them a precious panacea and drug which takes away the power and poison of sin and wholly destroys it. It is this word, forgiveness, before which sin disappears like stubbles before the fire. Without it, no work, suffering, or martyrdom avails against the smallest sin. For without forgiveness, sin is and remains pure sin which condemns us. Therefore, only confess this article heartily and boldly and say, Before the world I may be pious and do everything that is required, but before God it is only sin according to this article. Therefore I am a sinner, but a sinner who now has forgiveness, and who sits at the throne where grace rules supreme. And then he has a reference here for Psalm 116. I'll read a little bit here. It says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear unto me. Therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. Sorrows of death come past me, and the pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow, then I called I then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Then the psalmist says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. The Lord preserveth the simple. I was brought low, and he helped me. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am thy servant, I am thy servant, and the son of thine handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of thee, O Jerusalem, praise ye the Lord. I thought it was very worthwhile reading that. If this were not so, I would be a sinner like Judas, who saw only his sin, but no forgiveness. But Christians, no matter how much sin they feel in themselves, 
In that word forgiveness, see much more abundant grace presented to them and poured out over them. Thus learn then to magnify this article and spread it as far as Christ reaches and rules, that you may elevate it far above everything in heaven and on earth. For as the word soars over all this, so must also faith, which comprehends the word and keeps the heart steadfast in it, overcome sin, conscience, death, and the devil. Consider now what kind of a person a Christian is who lords it over death and the devil, before whom all sin is as a withered leaf. Now examine yourself and see how far you've learned this lesson, and whether it's such an insignificant and easy matter that some inexperienced souls think. For if you've learned and believed it, all misfortune, death and the devil, will be as nothing. Since you are still so vexed with sin, and since you are still frightened and in despair on account of death, hell, and God's judgment, humble yourself, give honor to the word, and confess you've never yet understood this matter. In short, let every man examine his own heart, and he'll find a false Christian who imagines that he knows all about this subject before he's learned the first principles of it. The words are soon heard, read, and repeated, but carry out the principle in practice and in character, so that it may live within us, and our conscience may be founded upon it, and rest in it, it is not in the art of man. Therefore I say and admonish that those who wish to be Christians may always keep it in mind, simulate it, practice it, chastise themselves with it, that we may at least have a taste of it, and as James says, be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, for we shall never advance so far in this life as to come to a perfect understanding of it. Nor did even the blessed apostles, full of the spirit and of faith, advance so far. Thus far I have explained the first part, what Christian righteousness is and in what it consists. But if you ask further, whither or whence it comes, or how it has been brought about or gained. Then I answer that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come from heaven and has made, been made man. He has suffered and died for our sins. This is a cause, a means, and a treasure through which we obtain the forgiveness of sin, for the sake of which the grace of God is bestowed upon us. For such a treasure does not come to us without means or merit. But since all of us are born in sin and are the enemies of God, we deserved only eternal wrath and punishment. All that we are and have is condemned, and there is no help or way out of it. For sin is so grievous that no creature can quench it. The wrath is so great that no man can appease and conciliate it. Therefore, another man must take our place, namely Jesus Christ, God and man, through his suffering and death, make satisfaction for our sins and pay for them. This is the price that has been set and has been expended for us, by which sin has been quenched and the wrath of God appeased. The Father has been reconciled and made our friend. Christians alone know this and believe it and are in its respect different from those of every other faith and worship upon earth. For the Jews and Turks and false Christians and those who would be righteous by their works also boast that God is merciful, 
There's no man on earth but knows something of the grace of God. And all of them fail to obtain it. Or in other words, they don't have the treasure in which it lies and from which it flows. They continue in their blindness and imagine they can acquire it by their works. Rigid life, their own holiness, with which they only make the wrath and displeasure of God the more grievous. Therefore, it's necessary that we rightly learn to know this treasure and seek forgiveness where it may be found. That is, that we thoroughly learn to know, comprehend, and keep the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is ordained that no one shall come into God's presence, find grace, nor obtain forgiveness of the least sin except through Christ. Because you are a sinner, you will always remain one. Your conscience is ever-present condemning and threatening you with God's wrath and punishment so that you cannot see the grace of God. With reference to the forgiveness of sins, let me say that you will not find anything in your heart with which you can pay them off or raise any funds for which God might recognize you and cancel the debt in the ledger. But if you seize Christ as the one who has become your substitute, who has taken your sins upon himself, and who has given himself with all his merit and worthiness for you, then no sin can avail anything against you. If I am a sinner, then he is holy. He is Lord over sin, death, Satan, and hell, so that no sin can harm me, because he has been given me as my righteousness and salvation. Therefore we have indeed fear, grace, and forgiveness of all sins, but nowhere except in and through Christ alone, and in him only, it must be sought and obtained. Therefore, whoever will come before God with any kind of work that God shall recognize and regard as meritorious for obtaining grace, will be disappointed and undeceived, yea, instead of grace, he will heap wrath upon himself says undeceived, it should say deceived. He will be disappointed and deceived. Yea, instead of grace, he will heap wrath upon himself. Thus you see that all other ways and means are condemned as the doctrines of devils by which men are led and directed to their own works or to the holiness and merits of others, as, for example, of the saints who have led ascetic lives and followed the rules of their orders, have suffered and expiated a great deal. Expiate means to put an end to by making amends for. Or as those have done who have comforted people in the throes of death and have admonished them to suffer death willingly for their sins. Whoever dares to offer anything else for sin or to atone for it himself does nothing else than deny the Lord Jesus Christ yea, disgrace and slander him as if the blood of Christ were of no more consequence than our repentance and satisfaction, or as if his blood were not sufficient to take away all the sins of the earth. Therefore, would you be freed from your sins? Cease to seek works and satisfaction and bring them before God, but simply creep under the wings and into the bosom of Christ as one who has taken away your sins has laid them upon himself. Thus you need not chastise yourselves with them or have anything to do with them. 
For he is the Lamb of God, says John, which taketh away the sins of the world. And also Peter says, There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The reason we are Christians is because we have Christ with all his merit and worthiness, not because of our efforts and works, which indeed make a saint, a saint Carthusius, a saint Francis, or an Augustinian monk, also make an obedient servant an extremist, as they are called. But such works can never make a Christian. Behold, now this is the second part which belongs to the sermon on this article. And that was how it has been brought to us or gained for us. And that was by the suffering of Jesus Christ. Now the third thought is how and by what means we may appropriate such righteousness so that we may receive the treasure which is acquired by Christ. Here also we need to give heed that we take the right way and not make the mistake which certain heretics have made in times past, and many erroneous minds still set forth who think that God ought to do something special with them. These imagine that God will deal separately with each one by some special internal light and mysterious revelation and give him the Holy Ghost as though there were no need of the written word or the external sermon. Consequently, we are to know that God has ordained that no one shall come to the knowledge of Christ, nor obtain the forgiveness acquired by him, nor receive the Holy Ghost without the use of external public means. But God has embraced this treasure in the oral word or public ministry, and will not perform his work in a corner or mysteriously in the heart, will have it heralded distributed openly among the people, even as Christ commands. Mark 16:15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and so forth. He does this in order that we may know how and where to seek and expect his grace, so that in all Christendom there may be the same custom and order, not every man following his own mind and act according to his own notions, and so deceive himself and others, which would certainly happen. As we cannot look into the heart of any man, each one might boast of having the Holy Ghost and set forth his own thoughts as divine revelation, which God had inspired and taught him in a special manner. As a result, no one would know whom or what to believe. Therefore, this part also, namely the external word or preaching, belongs to Christendom as a channel or means through which we attain unto the forgiveness of sins or the righteousness of Christ, with which Christ reveals and offers us his grace or lays it into our bosom, without which no one would ever come to a knowledge of this treasure. For whence should any man know, or in what man's heart would it ever come, that Christ, the Son of God, came from heaven for our sake, died for us, rose from the dead, and acquired the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and offers the same to us, without publicly having it announced and preached? 
Although he acquired this treasure for us through his suffering and death, no one could obtain or receive it. Christ did not have it offered, presented, and applied, and all that he had done and suffered would be to no purpose, but would be like some great and precious treasure buried in the earth, which no one could find or make use of. Therefore, I have always taught that the oral word must proceed everything, everything else, and must be comprehended with the ears if the Holy Ghost is enter the heart, who through the word enlightens it and works faith. Consequently, faith does not come except through the hearing and oral preaching of the word in which it has its beginning, growth, and strength. For this reason, the word must not be despised, but held in honor. We must familiarize and acquaint ourselves with it and constantly practice it so that it never ceases to bear fruit, for it can never be understood and learned too well. Let every man beware of the shameless fellows who have no more respect for the word than if it were unnecessary for faith, and if it were unnecessary for faith, or those who think they know it all become tired of it eventually fall from it, retain nothing of faith or of Christ. Behold, here you have all that belongs to this article of the righteousness of Christ. It consists in the forgiveness of sins offered to us through Christ, received by faith and through the word, purely and simply, without any works on our part. Yet I do not mean that Christians should not and must not do good works but that they are not to be mingled and entwined with the doctrine of faith and decorated with the shameless delusion that they avail before God as righteousness, whereby both the doctrine of works and of faith are besmirched and destroyed. For everything possible must be done to keep this article pure, unadulterated, and separate from all our own doings. But after we have this righteousness of faith or by faith, works are to follow and continue here on earth so that there may be civil righteousness that both be maintained each in its proper place but separate in their nature and efficacy. The former before God in faith over and above all works, the latter works in love to our neighbor. As we said plainly enough above and always taught, and may God help us to that end. Amen. Now the next sermon is the 20th Sunday after Trinity. And it says that this appeared first in 1523 in print. And text is Matthew 22, 1 to 14. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. They made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. The remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. 
When the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This gospel presents to us the parable of the wedding. Therefore, we are compelled to understand it differently than it sounds and appears to the natural ear and eye. Hence, we will give attention to the spiritual meaning of the parable, and then notice how the text has been torn and perverted. First, the king who prepared the marriage feast is our heavenly father. The bridegroom is his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The bride is the Christian church, we and the whole world, as far as we believe, of which we shall hear later. God first sent out his servants, the prophets, to invite guests to this wedding. They were bid to bid them, that is, preach and preach only, faith in Christ. Those invited did not come. They were the Jews to whom the prophets were sent. They would not hear nor receive those sent to them. At another time he sent other servants, the apostles and martyrs, to bid us come and to say to the bidden guests, Behold, I have made ready my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the marriage feast. These words beautifully picture to us and teach how we should make use of the life of the saints, namely, to introduce examples by which the doctrine of the gospel may be confirmed, so that we may, the better, by the aid of such examples and lives, meditate upon Christ, be nourished by the feast upon him as upon fatlings and well-fed oxen, this is the reason he calls them fatlings. Take an example. Paul teaches in Romans 3, 23 and following, how the bride is full of sin and must be sprinkled by the blood of Christ alone, or she will continue unclean. That is, she must only believe that the blood of Christ was shed for her sins, and there is no other salvation possible. Then he beautifully introduces the example of Abraham, confirms the doctrine of faith by the faith and life of Abraham, and he says, 4.3, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. That is a true ox. It is properly slain, and it nourishes us so that we become grounded and strengthened in our faith by the example and faith of Abraham. 
Again, soon after, Paul lays before us a fine fatling when he cites David, the prophet of God, and proves from him that God does not justify us by virtue of our works, but by faith, when he says in Romans 4, 6 to 8, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, and so forth, saying in Psalm 32, 1 and 2, that blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Behold, that's fattening and nourishing in the true sense when we use the example and doctrine of pious saints to confirm our doctrine and faith. And this is a true honor that we can give to the saints this is the true honor that we can give to the saints. Follow now further in this gospel of Christ here. It says, But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his merchandise. The rest laid hold on his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. These are the three barriers that prevent us from coming to the marriage feast. First, or the farm, signifies our honor. It is a great hindrance that we do not think of Christ and believe in him. We fear we must suffer shame and become dishonored. We do not believe that God can protect us from shame and preserve us in honor. The second go to their sphere of business, businesses, that is, they fall with their hearts into worldly affairs, into avarice, and when they should cleave to the word, they worry lest they perish and their stomach fail them. They don't trust God to sustain them. And then the third class are the worst. They are the high, wise, and prudent, the exalted spirits. They not only despise, but martyr and destroy the servants in order to retain their own honor and praise, yea, in order to be something. For the gospel must condemn their wisdom and righteousness and curse their presumption. This they cannot suffer. Therefore they go ahead and kill the servants who invited them to the dinner and the marriage feast. They were the Pharisees and scribes who put to death both Christ and his apostles as their fathers did the prophets. These are much worse than the first and second classes who, although they despised and rejected the invitation, yet they went away and neither condemned nor destroyed the servants. Further, the gospel says, But the king was wroth, and he sent his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. This happened to the Jews through the Romans, under Titus and Vespasian, who burned Jerusalem to the ground to its very foundation. However, I prefer to have it understood spiritually, since the whole gospel is to be explained spiritually. Hence this came to pass when God totally destroyed and burned to the ground the synagogue at Jerusalem. He entirely abandoned faith, scattered people hither and thither, so that none remained together, and they were robbed both of their priesthood and of their kingdom, so that there is now there is not now a poorer, a more miserable and forsaken people on the earth than the Jews. Such is the end of the despisers of God's word.
It now falls, then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. This has also come to pass, for the Jews have not desired to know anything at all of Christ. They put him to death, also the prophets and apostles, and from that time to the present they have not been worthy to hear a word concerning Christ. Furthermore, then said he to them, Go ye forth unto the partings of the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage feast. So they went out unto the highways, namely to us heathen, gathered us together from the ends of the world into a congregation in which are good and bad. Then the king goes in to behold the guests. This will take place on the day of judgment when the king will let himself to be seen. Then he will find one, not only a single person, but a large company, not clothed with a wedding garment, that is, with faith. These are pious people, much better than the foregoing, for you must consider them the ones who have heard and understood the gospel. Yet they cleaved to certain works and did not creep entirely into Christ. Like the foolish virgins who had no oil, that is, no faith. To them the king will say, Bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness, that is, he condemns their good works, and they no longer avail anything. For the hands signify their works, the feet their walk in life. He will then cast them into the outer darkness. Now this outer darkness is in contrast with the inner light, since faith alone must see within the heart. There our light our reason must be covered and cease, and faith alone lighten us. For if a person will act according to reason and open it, there is nothing but death, hell, and sin before his eyes. Then this reason of man comes to conclude that it is doomed for death, or candidate for death he has, yet it finds no help in any creature for all is desert and dark. Therefore reason must be barred out here, or it must despair and surrender itself as a captive to the light of faith alone. This same light then sees that it is God in heaven who is interested in us and who cares for us, upon whom the heart can meditate, who rejects all aid of reason, it depends upon no creature. Then man will be sustained. Now this is the sense of the words, and those cast thus into outer darkness will be robbed of faith and thus cast out, since they do not cleave to God's mercy alone through faith. They must despair and be condemned. Let us now briefly notice what is taught by this marriage feast. First, that this marriage feast is a union of the divine nature with the human. And the great love that Christ has for us in pre is presented to us in this picture of the wedding feast. For there are many kinds of love, but none is so ardent and fervent as a bride's love, the love a new bride has to her bridegroom. And on the other hand, the bridegroom's love to the bride. True love has no regard for pleasures or presents or riches or gold rings and the like cares only for the bridegroom. 
And even if he gave her all he had, she would regard none of his presence, but say, I will have only thee. And if on the other hand he has nothing at all, it makes no difference with her. She will, in spite of all that, desire him. That's the true nature of the love of a bride. But where one has regard to pleasure, it is harlot love. She does not care for for him, but for the money. Therefore, such love does not last long. This true bride love God presented to us in Christ in that he allowed him to become man for us and be united with our human nature so that we might thus perceive and appreciate his good will toward us. Now as the bride loves her betrothed, so also does Christ love us, and we on the other hand will love him. If we believe and are the true bride. And although he gave us even heaven, the wisdom of all the prophets, the glory of all the saints and angels, yet we would not esteem them unless he gave us himself. The bride can be satisfied by nothing, is insatiable. The only one thing she wants is the bridegroom himself. As she says in the Song of Solomon 2.16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. She cannot rest until she has her beloved himself, and so is Christ also, on the other hand, disposed toward me. He will have me only, and besides, nothing. And if I gave him even all I could... It would be of no use to him. He would have no regard for it, even if I wore all the hoods of all the monks. He wants my whole heart for the outward things, as the outward virtues are only maidservants. He wants a wife herself. He demands that I say from the bottom of my heart, I am thine. The union and the marriage are accomplished by faith so that I rely fully and freely upon him that he is mine. If I only have him, what can I desire more? Now, what do we give to him? An impure bride, a dirty old wrinkled outcast. But he is the eternal wisdom, the eternal truth, the eternal light, an exceptionally beautiful youth. What does he give us then? Himself wholly and completely. He does not cut a piece off for me or give me a little morsel, but the whole fountain of eternal wisdom, not a little brooklet. If then I am thus his and he is mine, I have eternal life, righteousness, and all that belongs to him. Therefore I am righteous, saved, and in a sense that neither sin, death, hell, nor Satan can harm me. If he gave me only a part of his wisdom, righteousness, and life, I would say, that is of no help to me, but I want thee. Without thee, nothing is real and true. When he gives me his servants, his prophets, he gives me only a part and a morsel. The gifts are only concubines, among whom there is only one who is the true bride. There are many souls to whom gifts are made, 
gifts such as wisdom, love, and the like. But to these souls, these souls are not the true bride, for they say, or they do not say, Thou art mine. But they are seeking the purse, for they love the gifts. But the true bride says, Thee alone will I have, thou art mine, and not the ring, not the jewel, not the present. Now, what do we bring to him? Nothing but all our heartaches, all our misfortunes, sins, misery, and lamentations. He is the eternal light, and we the eternal darkness. He is the life, we the death. He is righteousness, and we are sin. This is a marriage that is very unequal. But what does the bridegroom do? He is so fastidious that he will not dwell with his bride until he first adorns her in the highest degree. How is that done? The Apostle Paul teaches that when he says in Titus 3, 5, and 6 that he gave us his tender body on the death for them and sprinkled them with his holy blood and cleansed them through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. He instituted a washing. That washing is baptism with which he washes her. More than this, he has given to her his word. More than this, he has given to her his word in that, in that she believes and through her faith she becomes a bride. The bridegroom comes with all his treasures, but I come with all my sins, with all my misery and heart griefs. But because this is a marriage and a union, in the sense that they become one flesh, and they leave their father and mother and cleave to one another, they should embrace each other and not disown one another, although one is even a little sick and awkward. Well, what concerns one, the other must also bear. Therefore, the bride says that I am thine, thou must have me. Then he must at the same time take all my misfortune upon himself. Thus, then, are my sins eternal righteousness, my death eternal life, my hell is heaven. For these two, sin and righteousness, cannot exist together, nor heaven and hell. Are we now to come together, the one must consume and melt the other, in order that we may be united and become one. Now his righteousness is truly incomparably stronger than my sins, and his life is unmeasurably stronger than my death. For he is life itself, where all life must be kindled. Therefore my death thus vanishes in his life, and my sins in his righteousness, and my condemnation in his salvation. Here my sin is forced between the hammer and the anvil, so that it perishes and vanishes. For now, since my sin, my filth, is taken away, he must adorn and clothe me with his eternal righteousness, with all his grace, until I become beautiful, for I am his bride. Thus then I appropriate to myself all that he has, as he takes to himself all that I have, 
as the prophet Ezekiel 16, 6 says, I passed by thee, and thou wast naked, and thy breasts were fashioned and were marriageable. Then I spread my skirts over thee, and covered thy nakedness, gave thee my word, and put on thee beautiful red shoes. Here he relates many kind acts he did for her. Later he complains in verse 15 how that she became a harlot. He tells us all this, that he clothed us with his riches, and that we of ourselves have nothing. Whoso does not here lay hold of this is sure that he has nothing of himself, but only Christ's riches, and cannot without doubt say, cannot without doubt say that thou art mine, and he is not a Christian as yet. Now since Christ is mine and I am his, Satan rages, I have Christ who is my life. Does sin trouble me? I have Christ who is my righteousness. Do hell and perdition attack me? I have Christ, who is my salvation. Thus there may rage within whatever will, if I have Christ, to him I can look so that nothing can harm me. And this union of the divine and the human is pointed out in the picture here of the marriage feast and the exalted love God has to us in the love of the bride. Now it's time to turn this tape over. Now we're on paragraph 19, page 234. Now the wedding garment is Christ himself, which is put on by faith, as the apostle says in Romans 13, 14, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the garment gives forth a luster of itself, that is, faith in Christ bears fruit of itself namely love which works through faith in Christ. These are the good works that only flash forth from faith. Entirely, gratuitously do they go forth. They are done alone for the good of our neighbor. Otherwise they are heathenish works if they flow not out of faith. They will later come to naught and be condemned and be cast into the uttermost darkness. This is indicated here in the binding of his hands and feet. The hands, as said, are the works. The feet, the manner of life in which he trusted, and failed thus to cling to Christ alone. For we blame him that he had not on the wedding garment, that is, Christ. Therefore he must perish with his works, for they did not sparkle forth from faith, from the garment. Hence will you do good works, or would you do good works? Then believe first, if you will bear fruit, then be a good tree first. Later the fruit will follow of itself. The mistake is also readily observed here by which many have perverted the gospel in that they say, although the Pope and his following are wicked, yet we must obey him and acknowledge him as the head of Christendom. Let him do what he may, and yet he cannot err, and although he may not have on the wedding garment, nevertheless he is in the congregation. But one, or but we must not compare them. 
they're not so good that we could compare them to the one who had not on the wedding garment, for they are villains and murderers who killed the servants of the king. And even if they were worthy to be compared to him, yet the gospel in this parable does not teach us to follow them, but to cast them out and protect ourselves against them. For whoever has not on the wedding garment does not belong to the congregation, is filth like the slime, pus, and ulcers in the body. It is indeed in the body, but it's no part of the healthy body. Counterfeits are among money, but they are not money. Chaff is among the wheat, but it is not wheat. So these are among Christians, but they are not Christians. This is sufficient on today's gospel at this time. Let's pray God for grace that none of us may come to such a precious and glorious marriage feast without a wedding garment. Now we have the second sermon, and this one is found in edition C. The kingdom of Christ is a heading. This gospel is a very earnest admonition. Like today's epistle, to make good use of the time of the gospel and a terrible threatening of the awful punishment that shall pass upon the secure and proud heads that despise the time of the kingdom of grace, persecute the preaching of the gospel. Upon false, trivial spirits who bear the name of the gospel and of Christ or a show, and do not mean it in earnest. And by this gospel is well painted forth and made plain what the multitudes are who are called God's people or the church, possess his word, and how they act and act are both as to their inner nature and their outer appearance. First, God builds up his Christendom in a way that he calls it, in a way that he calls it, and what pertains to its government, the kingdom of heaven, to signify that he has called and separated out of the world a people for himself here upon the earth through the word of his gospel, not to the end that it should be fitted and organized like the outer and civil government with temporal rule, power, possessions, government, maintenance of outward worldly righteousness, discipline, defense, peace, and so forth. For all this has already before been richly ordered, and it was commanded and put into man to rule in this life as well as he can, although this is also through sin weakened and spoiled, so it's not as it should be, and is a poor, miserable, weak government, as weak and transient as a human body, and is able to go no further where it is at its best than the stomach, as long as the stomach performs its functions. But above that, God has arranged and instituted his own divine government. After he revealed his fathomless grace and gave his word to prepare and gather a people whom he redeemed from his wrath, eternal death and sin through which they fell, and into such misery and from which they could not help themselves by any human wisdom, counsel, or power, taught them to know him aright and praise and laud him forever. 
Christ here calls his kingdom the kingdom of heaven, where he does not rule in a temporal way nor deal with the things of this life, but he founded and developed an eternal, imperishable kingdom which begins on the earth through faith, and in which we receive and possess those eternal riches, forgiveness of sins, comfort, strength, renewal of the Holy Spirit, victory and triumph over the power of Satan, death and hell, finally eternal life of body and soul, that is, eternal fellowship and blessedness with God. Such a divine kingdom can be governed, built up, protected, extended, and maintained only by means of the external office of the word and of the sacraments, through which the Holy Spirit is powerful and works in the hearts and so forth. As I've often said in speaking on this theme, but in the most lovable and comforting way it is pictured to us here by Christ our Lord in that he himself likens it to a royal wedding feast when a bride was given to the king's son all were full of the highest joy and glory, and many were invited to this marriage feast and its joy. For this is among all the parables and pictures by which God presents the kingdom of Christ to us, a select and beautiful one. At Christendom, or the Christian state, is a marriage feast, or a matrimonial union, where God himself selects a church on the earth for his son, which he takes to himself as his bride. God here by our own lives and experiences will make known and reflect as in a mirror what we have in Christ, and also by the common state of marriage on earth in which we were born and reared and now live, he delivers a daily sermon and admonition in order that we should remember and consider this great mystery. For so St. Paul calls it in Ephesians 5.32, that the conjugal life of a man and wife instituted by God should be a great, beautiful, and wonderful sign, and a tangible yet spiritual picture that points out and explains something special, excellent and great, hidden to and inconceivable by the human reason, namely Christ and his church. For this accompanies the marriage state, where it is worthy of the name and may be called a truly married life, where man and wife truly live together. Firstly, true heart confidence in each other from both sides, as Solomon in Proverbs 31.11, among other virtues of a pious wife, also praises this, the heart of her husband trusteth in her, that is, he entrusts to her his body and life, money, possessions, and honor. Likewise, on the other hand, the heart of the wife clings to her husband. He is her highest, dearest treasure on earth, for she expects and has in him honor, protection, and help in all times of her need. Such a completely harmonious, equal, and eternal confidence and affection are not found among other persons and stations in life. For example, between a master and a servant, mistress and maidservant, yea, not even between children and parents. For there the love is not thus alike, strong and perfect to one another, and an eternal union does not endure here as in the marriage state instituted by God. As Genesis 2.24 says, 
Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Out of such love and heart confidence follows now also the fellowship in all they have in common and one another, or in all that befalls them, good or bad, so that each must accept it as his or her own, and add and impart help to the other with his or her means, and both suffer and enjoy, rejoice and mourn together, according as it may be well or ill with them. This now should be a parable or a sign of the great, mysterious, and wonderful union of Christ and his church, whose members we all are who believe on him, and as St. Paul says in Ephesians 5.30, of his flesh and bones, as at creation the wife was taken from the man. It must indeed be a great, fathomless, and inexpressible love of God to us, that the divine nature unites thus with us and sinks itself into our flesh and blood so that God's Son truly becomes one flesh and one body with us, so lovingly receives us that he is not only willing to be our brother but also our bridegroom, turns to us and gives us as our own all his divine treasures, wisdom, righteousness, life, strength, power, so forth, so that in him we should also be partakers of his divine nature. St. Peter says in his second epistle, 1-4. And it is his pleasure that we should believe this, so that we may be placed in possession of this honor and of these riches. Then we may rejoice and with all assurance take comfort in this Lord, as a bride does in the riches and honor of her betrothed. And thus his Christendom is his wife, an empress in heaven and upon earth, for she is called the Bride of God, who is Lord over all creatures. She sits in the highest manner in her glory and power over sin, death, Satan, hell, and so forth. Behold this he shows us in the ever, everyday picture of the wedding feast or the married state, where we see the love and faithfulness of pious wedded persons, also in the marriage feast, in the bride, and the bridegroom's joy and riches, that we learn to believe this, and that we also think that Christ's heart and mind are truly thus disposed to his bride, the church, but with far greater love, faithfulness, and grace. This he clearly shows us in his word of the gospel and by the Holy Spirit whom he gives to his church, prepares a glorious, joyful marriage feast at which he is wedded to his bride, and he takes her to himself, to speak in our childish and human way, leads his bride to the dance, as with fife and drum, takes her in his arm, again he honors and adorns her with all his finery, that is, with the blotting out and washing away of sins, with righteousness, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, with his light, knowledge, strength, and all the gifts which belong to that life. These are different chains, rings, velvet, silk, pearls, treasures, and jewels from the earthly ones, which are only a dead picture of those heavenly treasures. Therefore, wherever you see or hear bride and bridegroom, or the joy and beauty of a marriage feast, then open your ears and eyes 
your heart and eyes and behold what your loving Lord and Savior presents and shows to you. Who prepares a glorious royal feast for you, his beloved bride, a living member if you believe in him. In that is eternal joy, good cheer, singing and blooming, eternal ornaments and all riches and the fullness of everything good. Therefore a hearty confidence in him should grow and increase in thee that he calleth and chooseth thee through baptism to his fellowship, through his inexpressible hearty love, and receives thee to release thee from sin, eternal death, and the power of Satan, to impart thee his body and life and all that he has. Yea, he so completely gave himself to thee that thou mayest not only glory in what he did for thy sake and gave to thee, but thou mayest comfortably and joyfully glory in him as being thine, as a bride relies with hearty confidence upon her bridegroom and holds the heart of the bridegroom as her own. So do thou rely from the depths of thy heart upon the love of Christ, and entertain no doubt that he is not otherwise disposed to thee than as thine own heart is. But this is opposed beyond measure in us by our old Adam, our flesh and blood, our blindness and the stiffness of our hearts, stiffened hardness of our hearts, which does not permit us to see or believe it, especially if we see and experience in ourselves and in this miserable life other things before our eyes and senses. The reason sees and understands it well that the marriage feast and bridal love are in themselves a lovely and cheerful picture, and it may be taught that Christ is a beautiful, noble, pious, and faithful bridegroom, and his church a glorious, blessed bride. Things come to a stop later when everyone is to believe for himself that he is also of Christ and a member of his body and Christ bears such a heart and love toward him. The reason is that I do not see such excellent glory in myself, but on the contrary, my weakness and unworthiness feel nothing but sorrow, sadness, and all kinds of suffering and even death, the grave and maggots which are about to consume me. But in the face of this, you should learn to believe the word that Christ himself speaks to you, and God commands you to believe that it is true unless you wish to give God the lie, regardless of what you feel in your heart. For if you should believe, you must not cleave to what your thoughts and feelings say to you, but to what God's word says, no matter how little of it you may experience. Therefore, if you are a person who feels his need and misery and desires from the heart to partake of this comfort and love of Christ, then incline your ears and heart hither to Christ and lay hold of this comforting picture he presents to you. For with he shows that he will have himself known and believed by you, that he has in his heart a much warmer love, a more loyal fidelity to you, than any bridegroom to his beloved bride. And on the other hand, you should have a much heartier and greater confidence and joy in him than any bride has to her bridegroom, so that here you may justly chastise yourself because of your unbelief and say, Behold, can the bridal love cause such hearty confidence and joy between the bride and the bridegroom? 
which is still of a low order and transitary, why do I not rejoice much more over my holy and faithful Savior Christ, who gave himself for me and to me holy as my own? Shame on me because of my unbelief that my heart is not here full of laughter and eternal joy when I hear and know how that he says to me through his word that he will be my beloved bridegroom. Should I not much rather have here another a higher joy my eyes, thoughts, heart, and whole life cleave more to my beloved Savior than a bride to a bridegroom, who, if she is a pious and true bride, sees and hears indeed nothing more gladly than her spouse. Yes, even when she does not see him, and he is absent from her, her heart cleaves to him, so that she cannot but think of him. However, as I said, it's our old Adam, the corrupt nature, that does not allow the heart to lay hold of this knowledge, joy, and consolation. Therefore it is, and will doubtless continue to be, as St. Paul calls it in Ephesians 5.32, a mystery, a secret, deep, hidden, incomprehensible thing, but yet a something great, excellent, and wonderful, not only to the blind, foolish world, cannot think or understand anything at all of these high divine things, but also for the beloved apostles and advanced Christians, that herein they have enough to learn and believe. They themselves are compelled to confess how long they labored with it, preached about it, strove after it, and it is to them still a mystery in this life. For St. Paul even himself, often complain that it did not work so powerfully in him because of his flesh and blood as it should work if it were as fully understood and apprehended as it should be. For he and other saints would not have been so anxious, sad, and terrified as he often was. And the prophet David also lamented in many psalms that their hearts could have soared in pure joy. However, they will be free from all this in the life beyond, where they will see without any covering and dimness to the vision, and be filled with joy and live forever. For the present, it remains a mysterious, hidden, spiritual marriage feast that one does not see with the eyes nor grasp with the reason, but faith alone is able to grasp it, as faith lays hold only to the word it hears concerning it, and yet grasp it still very weakly on account of our perverse flesh. For this marriage feast is so totally foreign to reason that it is terrified when it thinks how great it is. I speak now still of the Christians, for the others do not come to it. They I speak now still of the Christians, for the others do not come to it. They hold it simply as impossible yea, as mere talk of fools and a fable, when they hear that God becomes man's bridegroom. But to Christians who have commenced to believe it must be shocked and amazed at its greatness. Dear God, how shall I exalt myself so highly as to boast of being God's bride and God's son my bridegroom? How do I, a poor offensive worm of the dust, come to this honor, which never befell the angels in heaven, that the eternal majesty condescends so very low into my poor flesh and blood, thoroughly unites himself with me, 
and he will be one body with me, and yet I am from the sole of my foot to the crown of my head so completely full of filth, leprosy, sin, and stench before God. How shall I then be considered the bride of the eternal, high, and glorious majesty, and be one body with him? But hear well that God desires it to be so. In Ephesians 5, 25, 6, and 7, he says, I will dress and place before me a bride who shall be my church, that is, glorious, of the glory I myself have, not having spot or wrinkle, but holy, without blemish, and so forth, just as I am. He does not speak of a bride that he finds in this state, pure, holy, blameless, without spot, and so forth. Such a bride he should not seek on the earth, but he should have remained among his angels in heaven to find her there. But he revealed himself through his word to men, surely not for the sake of this life, but that he might be praised forever through her. And therefore he must have had in mind something greater to do with and through her. The great mystery is that he did not take upon himself the nature of angels, but he united himself with the human nature. Let's read that in uh, Ephesians 5, 25, 6, and 7. It says in there, Christ, husbands, first of all, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. So as Christ finds us, and uh, he has to cleanse us, wash us and cleanse us with washing of water by the word, so husbands don't find their wives perfect. They have to bear with many infirmities and so forth. Then Luther says, Here on earth, Christ finds nothing but a corrupt, filthy, shameless, condemned bride of Satan that has become faithless to God, her Lord and Creator, and fallen under his eternal wrath and curse. He is now to secure here a bride or congregation, who to be sure must be also pure and holy, otherwise there could be here no union. Then he must first, and in the highest degree, show his love, that he applies his purity and holiness to her sins and condemnation, and thereby cleanses and sanctifies her. This he did do, as St. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 25 to 26, in that he gave himself for her and purchased her by his blood to sanctify her for himself, and besides cleansed and washed her by the baptism of water, and, or to which, a word, he adds a word which one hears. By means of the same word and baptism, he prepares her to be his loving bride and praises and claims her to be pure from sin, 
God's wrath and the power of Satan. Furthermore, does he desire that she esteem herself also as a loving, beautiful, holy, and glorious bride of God's Son. That there, uh, verse 26 in Ephesians 5, it says, He cleanses it with the washing of water by the word. He doesn't say the washing of water, which is the word. You notice that? Or he doesn't just leave it at the washing of water so that we could think that, well, that washing is a washing of the Word of God in this place. He doesn't do that. I noticed that in here. And Luther brought that out. That's a thought. In Hebrews, 10th chapter, 22nd verse, now it talks a little bit different, sounds to me like. He says in there, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In that place there now, I would say that he's talking about the pure water would be the word of God. I'll see what Luther says on that. I'll check it out when we get get a break here and we'll come back to it that's in Hebrews 10 here no one sees how excellent a work is accomplished thus hidden and secretly through God's word baptism and our faith yet by it the result is accomplished that this company of poor sinful men who were not worthy to behold God at a distance because of their great filthiness are made through this bath and washing clean, beautiful, and holy, so that they are well-pleasing to God as the bride of his beloved son and as his loving daughter. And thus, and this purity commenced in this life, he develops and continues constantly in her until she is presented to him purer and more beautiful than the light and brightness of the sun. Therefore, a Christian must learn to believe this, so that he in the future does not consider himself in the light of his first birth, as he was born from Adam, but as he is called to Christ and baptized into him. Like all Christians, confides in and is united with him, so they should cling to him as to their bridegroom, who through the same washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, while they are still unclean, he continually purifies and adorns them until the day he presents his church to himself, not only without a spot or stain, but also without a wrinkle. Very beautiful, sleek and perfect, like fresh youth. Therefore, do not be terrified if you feel too entirely unworthy and impure. For if your thoughts remain fixed on that, then you will forget and lose this confidence and trust in Christ. We need to feel it. That's exercise of our faith. But he says we need not, we should not fix our thoughts on it. But you must heed the word that Christ speaks to you. Although you are full of sin, death, and perdition, yet you have here my righteousness and life, which I apply and give to you. If you are impure and filthy, you have here the washing of baptism, 
and of my word through which I wash you and pronounce you clean and will constantly cleanse you forever and ever until you shall stand before me and all creatures perfectly beautiful and pure. This he tells us not only through his word but in order that we might not complain being left without admonition and preaching. He presents it to us in so many different everyday pictures and parables of wedded love, yea, of the first warmth and fervency between a bride and a groom, when we see how both hearts cling to one another and one has joy and pleasure in the other. Here the bride does not fear in the least that her groom will cause her suffering or harm or cast her away, but in hearty affection confides in him and doubts not he will take her into his arms, sit with her at the table, and give her as her own whatever he has. We should in this also truly know Christ's heart, and not allow ourselves to picture him otherwise than we hear and see him both in his own word and in the parables and signs which present him to us, that we may indeed never dare to complain except of ourselves and of our old Adam that hinders us in our beautiful joy. For should not a man become his own enemy, and only wish that death might soon do away with him, for the reason that he knows not himself, cannot rightly, as he should, taste and enjoy his great treasure, joy, and blessedness? And so perhaps it might be best for us, except that this life with its temptations, cross, and sufferings is to be the school in which always and daily we more and more learn to know what he is in us and we in him, and in which therefore we also work for this that we may seize him, even as he ran after us and seized us, in that he fetched and won us for his own with his sweat and blood. Alas, however, that we are too weak lazy and slow thus to run after him in this life. Behold, such is a glorious royal wedding in this kingdom which Christ calls the kingdom of heaven, to which we, all of us, bidden and unbidden, Jews and Gentiles, come by means of the gospel resounding in all the world, as called by fifes and drums, which after the manner of the scriptures are called the voices of the bridegroom and the bride. That is to say, a marriage-like voice or sound and tone. That is a token of the wedding and the joys, and is to announce unto every one such joy and call us thereunto. But now consider further how this wedding feast fares in the world and how the world carries itself towards it when it is to become a partaker in this blessed kingdom. We have just now heard how hard on account of their flesh this is even to Christians, albeit they strive after this kingdom of God and seek their comfort in Christ. But now it is further shown how the other adverse realm of the devil in the world, as in its empire, fights against God's kingdom and drives and chases people, at lest they accept and hear the joyous, comforting word about this wedding and joy in Christ, rather wittingly and knowingly scorn the same, a oppose themselves to it, even though they be called and bidden thereto. 
This is said especially of the Jewish people who are the first bidden guests to, God, to whom God sent his servants, first the patriarchs and prophets, then later the apostles, causing them to be begged and admonished not to neglect the time of their blessedness and salvation. They, however, not alone despise this, but also fly at the servants of God who offer them such grace to beat them to death. Will they listen or suffer to be told more of this wedding? And these are not common, ordinary people, but the very best, wisest, and holiest of all, who let themselves be occupied with far higher and more needful things than to be persuaded to come to this wedding, to receive good things for nothing, and to be helped into heaven. They know much better for themselves how by their own precious life to bring about great works, the law's holiness, and God's service. Hereof more is said in the gospel story of the great supper concerning those who excuse themselves and would not come. And that's found in Luke 14. Then Luther says, Like unto these are also all such as are called by the gospel to faith and a knowledge of Christ, but they will not hear and accept the same. These are always the greatest and best part of the world who, as we know, wish to be called God's people and the church. They also have to attend to far greater and better things, how they may keep up their fine, glorious estate and condition, which they call the government and glory of the church. Oh, that they will not hear. They esteem it as an innovation and change of the good and praiseworthy old order and so forth. And the more one urges them to obey the gospel, the less will they listen to it, and the more bitterly do they pursue it, as we always see before our eyes in the world. Well, then, we should herefore, therefore, honor at his wedding feast the King and Lord of glory and thank him for his abundant grace and the good to which he has called us and of which he makes us worthy. So be it, we judge ourselves worthy of everlasting life. As St. Paul says in Acts 13:46, Whatever men were to gain thereby, Christ has herewith foretold them. Thus they have themselves experienced, and the belief, as it were, has come into their hands that he has told them no lying story, but that it has proved only too true that the king has sent out his host and slain these murderers, which for now 1,500 years' experience has confirmed, namely, that this judgment has not been removed, and that thus finally wrath has come over them and they shall remain as not, for he himself shows that it has never yet repented him, and that he thereupon forthwith says to his men, The wedding is ready, but the guests were not worthy, and so forth. Which is also for other scorners and persecutors a terrible token and example of the final wrath resolved against them, and of such punishment wherewith he will altogether make an end also of them because they would not partake of and enjoy this feast, as has already happened to Greece and Rome and will likewise happen to our blasphemers and pursuers, unless the day of judgment come between. These then have received their judgment as they would have it, in order, however, that Christ may still get people to his wedding feast,
His servants must continually go on with their preaching and bid and call whomsoever they find until they fetch so many together that the tables are full, not indeed of the great ones, holy and mighty men, who were first bidden but would not come. Rather must the poor cripple and halt, as he here and elsewhere says, rejoice at being allowed to come to this feast, that is, the heathen who are not numbered among God's people and have nothing whereof they might be proud. But among this company who are here sitting at the table, there is also found a rogue whom the king, in looking over the guests, speedily recognizes, judges to have no wedding garment, and to have come not in honor of the wedding, but as disgracing the bridegroom and lord who has invited him. Now these are such as also permit themselves to be numbered among true Christians. They hear the gospel. They are in the outward communion of the right church and make before the people as if they also might be of the gospel. Still they are not in earnest about it. With this Christ shows who on earth are that community which is called the church. To wit, not those who persecute God's word and his servants of the gospel, for these are already wholly excluded and removed by his final judgment. Hey, they have spilt their own milk by their public and self-confessed act of not accepting and suffering this preaching of the gospel. Should not and cannot among Christians be considered members of the church because they have not its doctrine and faith. Just as little can one consider professed heathen Turks and Jews as a church or its members, such judgment we must now also pass on our persecutors and blasphemers of the gospel, as, for example, the Pope and his following. Entirely separate ourselves from them, as they do not in the least belong to the Church of Christ, but are damned by their own judgment, to which they testify by having turned us away as outlaws and outcasts. The Church on earth, however, if we speak of the outward community, is a gathering of such as hear, believe, and confess the right teaching of the gospel of Christ, and have with them the Holy Ghost, who sanctifies them and works in them by the word and sacraments. Yet among these, some are false Christians and hypocrites, who nevertheless are at one with them in the same doctrine, also hold communion in the sacraments and other outward offices of the church. A, such people the Christians must suffer in their gathering, cannot as men are avoided or prevent them from being amongst them, nor can they remove them or turn them out of their gathering. They cannot indeed judge and recognize them all, but must bear them and suffer their company, but only till God himself comes with his judgment, so that they become manifest and give themselves away by their wicked life, or false belief and spirit of heresy as not being true and honest Christians. Of this St. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 11:19. There must be also heresies among you that they who are approved may be made manifest amongst you. On the other hand, also those who are not approved. Thus here the king comes in, himself to behold the guests, and makes manifest him who has not the wedding garment. And now that he has become manifest and is nevertheless hypocrite that he is, impenitent, obstinate, and dumb, he causes him to be bound hand and foot, and that 
he may not enjoy the feast, be cast out of the festive gathering, where there is not but light and joy, into darkness, where there is no comfort nor blessedness, but only weeping and gnashing of teeth. This then likewise is done in the church by which such impenitent sinners, convicted and overcome, are also openly shown out of the congregation, publicly declared outcasts from God's kingdom. Therefore the Christians who are the right and dear guests at this wedding at all times have this comfort that the others who do not belong thereto, that is, both the persecutors and the false brethren, shall not enjoy the same. For even as the former, the persecutors, manifest themselves as not being members of the church, and that they exclude themselves and go apart. Thus the others who for a time have crept in and have falsely sought cover under the name and semblance of true Christians shall also finally become manifest. This also St. Paul speaks of in Timothy, how some men's sins go before the judgment and so forth. From this it is easy to understand what is meant by this man's being without a wedding garment namely without the new adornment in which we please God, which is faith in Christ. And therefore he is also without truly good works. He remains in his old rags and tatters of his own fleshly conceit, unbelief and security, without penitence, understanding of his misery. He does not from his heart seek comfort in the grace of Christ, neither will he better his life by it, and he looks for no more in the gospel than what his flesh covets. For this wedding garment must be the new light of the heart, kindled in the heart by the knowledge of the graciousness of this bridegroom and his wedding feast. The heart will cleave to Christ, and, transfused by such comfort and joy, will so live and do as it knows to be pleasing unto him, even as a bride towards the bridegroom. This St. Paul calls putting on the Lord Christ, and being clothed that we shall not be found naked, so forth which takes place especially through faith, by which the heart is renewed and purified, and of which thereupon also the fruits, provided it be the true faith, will follow and prove themselves. On the other hand, where there is no faith, there also the Holy Ghost is not, nor such fruits as please God to be found. For whoever does not know Christ through faith, and has him not in his heart, he will also care little for God's word, neither will he think of living according to it. He will remain proud, insolent, and headstrong, though outwardly he may, with a false semblance, practice hypocrisy and deceit. And I'm sure he's deceiving himself. He doesn't know even what he's doing, poor soul.